I'm sorry, I've got a terrible um, sore throat and my voice, I hope, will hold out. And I hope we can run over into lunch a little bit. Because, yeah, we, we, because we can run a few minutes. Partly because um, I've got too much to say. I actually want to answer some of the questions that Michael got asked. And I'll just say something very quickly, because I don't think Michael asked, uh, responded the one at the back about the Liberal curriculum. Um, and I, I actually think her reasons for a Liberal curriculum are right. So um, just on the no such thing as skills... I think there's also something very significant and important with that, which actually coincides with this issue of anti-genericism. But probably the way it gets interpreted and implemented is the very opposite of what is meant. So I think this is to do with, rather than having a separate skill, that you learn the skills and then you learn some knowledge to use them with, the actual skill comes about and emerges through actually moving around within the knowledge domain itself. Um, and the other thing is the Paul Nurse Lecturer's podcast on LSE. So I, I would recommend it because I think there's more to, to what he was saying as well that's relevant to what we're talking about today. And it's very interesting. Look, just to get you thinking, because I'm going to go off into some very dense philosophy and I hope my, um, you know, what I'm saying will hold up. But I just want to get you to think about where I'm coming from. And I'm, what I'm concerned with is what makes us distinctively human and how we can think about that. I'm thinking about that as a philosopher drawing on recent philosophy. And I'm just going to show you a sort of two-minute clip of um, a memory man up against a chimp trying to do a task. So somebody who's a kind of expert on memory. Let me see if I can get this opening. We'd seen his party piece with a pack of cards, but was his memory photographic? Researchers who, who are carrying out that research 
um, have a, an account. Obviously, we don't know enough about what distinguishes us from other primates. But they have an account of, of why he can't do as well as the chimp. Just get this onto full screen. Sorry. Oh, it is on there. Okay, good. It's giving me the next slide. <laughs> um, and and what they say is that in evolutionary terms, when we began to be distinguished as a, as a, a primate, um, it was when language developed, and they relate that they they give a neuroscientific account of that in terms of the wiring up of the brain. But the the important thing there, and if, uh, if there was more time, we'd actually have a chat about what you think are the reasons for this, what you would speculate. The important thing there is that when the human being's responding to those visible light images on a screen, they're, re they're responding to a concept of number. They're not responding just to a shape in a particular order. So what I'm going to be talking about relates to the fact that we're responsive to reasons and that normative constraints that we institute act on us to give us a different form of contact with the world to any other life form. So that's a very complicated idea, but I just wanted to sort of use that video to try to provoke you to think about how very special human beings are and what's involved in thought and the nature of our contact with the world and how we develop and produce knowledge. So, Jeff wanted me to talk about transformative pedagogy, but I'm going to talk predominantly, like Michael, about knowledge. But I hope you'll see much stronger pedagogic aspects here, because I'm, I'm thinking coming to it from a different um, sort of direction than Michael is. So, of course, we're all familiar with E.D. Hirsch and the controversy around his work. And what's interesting is the debates around knowledge are often polarised about those who want to place great emphasis on pedagogy and meaning-making and issues to do with social justice and access, and then those Michael's given some accounts of who want to emphasise facts. And of course, when Hirsch first began to, his ideas began to be popular, he had a rather reductive conception of knowledge, which is, you can see in these quotes, where he's talking about all human communities are founded on specific shared information. So he doesn't distinguish in his first book between information and knowledge. And the basic goal of education in a human community is acculturation to the transmission of this specific information. The problem with information, if we went back to the chimpanzee, is it tells you very little about what you're dealing with. What, what is this information? Is it just data? Um, and of course, there are a number of critiques of knowledge in the contemporary university and in schools. Guy Claxton here characterises universities where he talks about the monistic sort of metaphor, knowledge handed down by an unimpeachable authority or mind and purified once upon a time by men mostly who were much cleverer than both students and the teachers, usually in places called universities. So I take trans the, the kind of move towards what's called transformative pedagogy to be part of what Claxton would be interested in, which is challenging this sort of... Um, absolute forms of knowledge. But I want to give you a different conception of knowledge that still tries to preserve some of the things that even perhaps Hirsch is getting at. But before I start again, I want you to think about some of the presuppositions that people have when they're talking about knowledge. And Rob Reich, when he wrote a very significant work, The Work of Nations, a book that he wrote when I think he was working for the Clinton administration and advising them on policy for education. 
he talked about what are we what kind of things do we need to educate for in the 21st century in a hyper competitive globalized world and he talked about the symbolic analysts but this is very interesting for me because this is his characterization of the kind of epistemological position we're in he says we're now part of the knowledge age where data will be available at the touch of a computer key so again, we've got a very simplistic idea of knowledge almost equated with data in this characterization. I'm being slightly unfair on Riche, but I'm just trying to use it to get you to think about what presuppositions you have when you're thinking about knowledge. And he says, consider first the capacity for abstraction. The real world is nothing but a vast jumble of noisy shapes, colors, smells, and textures, essentially meaningless until the human mind imposes some order on them. Now, if that is the case, if that's the epistemological position you hold, then no wonder you would argue that meaning-making has to be given the priority. You know, everybody's got their individual perspectives, everybody's constructing how they see the world. This is coming from their particular positions. Because there isn't a world out there already that we're already part and parcel of and that already has some structuring to it. So... Here's an example that Claxton uses, and he's talking about education, and this, I think, is in line with this sort of constructionist approach to knowledge. He's concerned about people seeing knowledge as provisional and as a human construction, and I think this is a very common theme that, that you know, also pervades thinking about pedagogy within higher education. So he, gives, he draws on an example of some researchers studying some tutors, students learning Newton's laws from motion. And he says the, the psychologists checked to see if attitudes to knowledge influenced how they went about learning Newton's laws. And to their surprise, they found that the students who saw knowledge as a provisional human construction, constantly open to question and change, showed a deeper and more accurate understanding of Newton than did those peers who believed that science was an eternal truth. So his characterization of what was going on there and what really mattered might appear absolutely reasonable. But the interpretation of the results of this research in terms of the student's perspective on knowledge as a provisional human construction fails to attend to the detail of what students are in fact accessing. So what I'm trying to get at here is um, Put it in an extreme kind of uh, devil's advocate way. There's a rhetoric of people making meaning. I mean, in a way, this links to the paper that um, Michael mentioned, Joe Muller's paper with Rob Moore, about voice, the voice discourse. People are making meaning, they're constructing things, and the more that students are thinking about knowledge in that way, the more successful they'll be. Now, I'm not denying those students weren't more successful, but what I'm interested in is what made them more successful. And that relates to what I'm seeing as what makes us distinctively human. So the contrast of certain and provisional neglects the structure and form of the knowledge domain. What I'm going to go on to talk about, it's normative constraints. And as a result, it's insufficiently fine-grained. So I don't think Claxton gets to the heart of what's helping those students. Um, achieve more than the students who see knowledge in absolute terms. The students' orientation to what they study is crucially important. If they come to think of knowledge only as direct and simple representation of the world, Michael gave an, a lovely example there, which is generally the case with PhD students, that when PhD students come across 
complex terminology or jargon that's to do with particular theories, their immediate, um, often natural sort of response is to use those terms as labels and try and carve up the world according to those labels, rather than, as Michael said, Bernstein intended them as hypotheses. So it's this dynamic aspect to the structure of knowledge that really matters here. So, of course, if they see the world in that way, they will not develop their concepts in a way that allows them to fully grasp what they study. But on the other hand, if students are led to believe that all knowledge needs to be continually challenged, something is lacking. So that might, might seem a controversial thing to say. And of course, it, what, what's at stake here is what I mean by continually challenged or what Claxton or other authors mean by continually challenged. So is lack of provisionality really the problem? So the authors of the research study recognise that conceptual understanding in physics is a gradual and complex process that takes a lot of time to accomplish. So in a way, I think we've got two positions here. We've got the kind of common sense position, which is that knowledge is made up by people. You know, it, it's, it's based on that epistemology that I'm talking about. The world is devoid of any meaning and we put our stamp on it by the way we construct it and our making up is modified by something external that you might call the empirical. I'm putting forward a very different position which is that the structure of thought should, is understood as connected to the conditions in which it emerges. Now, of course you may not see much of a distinction there but I'm trying to place something on the world that we inhabit and how that allows us and furnishes the possibility for us to hypothesise, which I'd rather use that sort of term than make, um, make up meaning. So what's the problem? We either have unchangeable knowledge as the problem, or what I would say the problem is lack of awareness of normative constraints. So this is the philosophical part coming out. A failure to appreciate fully and to take account of the normative constraints that knowledge relies upon, i.e. that, and this is what I mean by it, so I'm going to elaborate the meaning of normative constraint, and actually there's not sufficient time to give you a full sense of it and how it connects with pedagogy, but this is just one aspect of it. So um, what I'm meaning by normative constraints is that the meaning of any one concept is determined by its connection with other concepts. And, this, and so, because people don't appreciate this, I'm arguing it leads to an inaccurate target of criticism, i.e. You know, knowledge, disciplinary knowledge, becomes the target of, of criticism, rather than seeing what the issue is in terms of a lack of normative constraints. So, Charles Crook did an interesting study um, in, when he was working in university with psychology students, where he compared students who were, how they collaborated around traditional versus computer-based notes. So what he did is he split the group that he was teaching, it was a very large group, into three groups. One was um, just in a traditional, well everybody was in a traditional lecture format, he was giving a lecture. One group was taking notes, just like you might have done you know, 50 years ago in a lecture. Um, the other one was given a full transcript of the lecture to work with, and the other one was given a number of digital resources, including the transcript. And what he did is he studied how they were revising for an exam and, and how they were getting grips to grips with the knowledge domain. So what was interesting is that with the traditional notes, because there was an incompleteness of the personal record, 
there was an opportunity to question and challenge. So if we were all to, if you're all taking notes now of what I'm saying, and then you got into a room and started trying to get your heads together and say, what was she going on about? What was she talking about? You're all going to have slightly different notes to each other, and you're going to have focused on different aspects. And what that furnished was a situation where they then had to, in a sense, get to grips with what's known in philosophy as the inferential structure of the knowledge. They had to start thinking about their reasons for why they hit on one particular concept or why they understood it in a particular way. Or if they were trying to explain a point to an, a group of students, they might use a referential device. They might point to, well, he said this or he was referring to that. Um, to work on the kind of uncertainty they had about what actually was involved in, in reconstructing a sense of the event. Whereas the students with com computer-based notes, both groups I believe, um, he says perhaps it seemed less appropriate to work at collectively remembering an event that seemed to be already represented before them in a comprehensive and official form. So actually their orientation to the knowledge when they were given the full transcript or when they were given the digital resources was different from the one where they had to take their own notes and it was less powerful pedagogically in terms of their learning. So there's something interesting there about students having to give reasons for how they're applying concepts that can be lacking when it seems that they're being afforded with rich you know, um, data or information or whatever for them to make sense of things. So I, because I'm interested in Vygotsky, I link this to Vygotsky's work. And when he talks about concepts, he's got a very rich notion. It's very different from the version of concepts that Michael was describing when he was talking critically about some impoverished school practice that might rely on disciplinary knowledge. Um, so Vygotsky says, the nature of things is disclosed, not in direct contemplation of one single object or another. So the chimp, there's not really contemplation quite going on there. Um, there's a very powerful ability to get things in an order. But in a sense, there's a single object. But, in connect, but, but for the human being, what's happening when we're using concepts is it's in the connections and relations that are manifested in the movement and the development of the object, and these connect it to the rest of reality. So sorry, that was a rather um, garbled. But the crucial point here is that when we're responding to anything as a human being, even like a colour, like Michael said, the concept red, say, we already know not green, not blue, not white. We might not know not magnetic, is it? Another colour that might come in a spectrum of red colours or something. We might not have the distinctions an artist might make, but we already connect our concept of something to a number of other concepts. And that's what any learner brings to a situation. They're already functioning in a, in a very complex environment. So an example in um, a disciplinary area in biology, the concept of gene, which is very interesting at the moment because there's a lot of research, of course, going on with it. It's very different to the kind of hopes Blair had for the genome project, which was that you would just be able to map all sorts of things and predict outcomes in terms of your health. In fact, there's no one clear concept of gene currently. The gene concept undergoes transformation as it's deployed in research. So when we use concepts in Vygotsky's sense, they're always interconnected with our practices and the world that we inhabit. And they're connected to other concepts in particular ways by virtue of that. 
So Lenny Moss is talking about, when he, in his book, What Genes Can't Do, he, he talks about the conflation of gene understood of preformationism, which is the one where the gene tells you whether you're going to have a heart attack within a decade of your life as you're older, and gene understood in terms of genesis, which is the big research agenda now around epigenesis, and which is the gene actually has to actualize itself in an environment. And he's saying, at the moment in research, you've got both of these concepts functioning, and it leads to loss of their productive power. In each case, the meaning of the concept gene is constituted by the particular system of connections of which it is a part. So Brigant, talking about Moss's work, says the term gene figures in two distinct explanatory games in molecular biology. Each of these two sets of inferences, motivated by the gene concept, is legitimate in its appropriate context. How can it be legitimate? Well, it's legitimate because the concept, when it's being used in the preformationist sense, is connected to other concepts in a particular way. And that has a validity. You know, if you assume A, then B is connected and C follows. You know, so you have a hypothesis in a sense. You have a very rich model. But conflating them leads to fallacious inferences and an inappropriate version of genetic determinism. So you'd hope that when students are studying genetics, they're not just trying to get all the labels and the definitions and get under their belt all the rules about how they use the word gene, but instead they're thinking about those concepts within the inferential domain that constitutes them, within what I'm calling the normative constraints on them. You know, there are rules about how you can apply preformationist concept of gene, and there are rules about when you're applying um, an epigenetic concept of gene, and those rules determine the knowledge. So the internal connection of things is disclosed with the help of thinking in concepts. That's a very different way from these uh, sort of junior research students thinking about Bernstein's concepts, for example. They're thinking about them as in a representational sense. What does he mean when he uses this term singular or vertical discourse? How, what do I apply it to? What do I exclude? But this is different. This is getting the person to be active as a thinker, as a human being, rather than something that's just responsive to data and to stimulus. So the internal connections of things is disclosed with the help of thinking in concepts. For to develop a concept of some object means to disclose a series of connections and relations of the object with the rest of reality, to include it in a complex system of phenomenon, in a system of judgments in which the concept is disclosed. So this is the philosopher coming out here. You know, if you want to use a term like rights, you know, I'm for human rights, You've got to think about what, what, you're, um, what you're including in that, what you feel is entailed by that. And Michael Sandel's brilliant at getting audiences, you can hear him on Radio 4, on podcasts, you know, getting audience to say what they think about something in a political sense, and then getting them to examine what they've presupposed. And as soon as they start examining it, they change what they're saying. And that's a very rich Vygotskian thing, isn't it? The minute you externalise a thought, you begin to have a new relation to it and you realise you didn't mean what you meant to say. And it changes your meaning. It's the creativity that goes along with the writing process. So if we talk about Claxton's characterisation as you know, the poverty of, of a kind of university where knowledge is an unimpeachable authority, Vygotsky's got a very different sense. He says, 
If we think that the process of generalising is a direct abstraction of traits, then we'll inevitably come to the conclusion that thinking abstractly is removed from reality. So I'm using Vygotsky's quote here to suggest that a lot of the kind of populist critiques of knowledge, um, which ignores pedagogy or ignores meaning-making, which are often um, articulated, actually uh, assume a certain epistemology, again, assume that that knowledge came as a result of abstracting traits and making generalisations. Whereas the previous quote that I gave you from Vygotsky gives you a sense of the concept being something that's a tool that's being used by people in the world. It's, it's coming up against restraints in the world by virtue of the practices. And when I talk about the world, I don't just mean the material world, I mean the ideal world. If you're working in biology, there's restrictions about how you can apply the concept gene at this current period in time. Those restrictions may be modified over time, but they're the constraints that we're trying to bring uh, students into, make them aware of, make them responsive to. Why does all this matter? Because it goes to the heart of what distinguishes us from other primates, and that's our freedom. We can't blame a cat for torturing a, mice, a mouse. We can't say, you know, that's a, a horrible thing to do. It's in its nature to do it. But human beings have a nature which they can develop and it changed over time. And we have responsibility for the things that we do in the world. And that's what freedom is about. So contemporary philosophy shifts attention from what it's assumed we share with animals to what it is that is distinctive about human beings, our responsiveness to reasons. So this is our responsiveness to the normative constraints that have been instituted the normative constraints that make you all sit quietly listening to me at the moment. You didn't have to think as you entered the room. You would have had to if you were a two-year-old. You know, you would have thought, why is everybody quiet here? But you've become habituated to certain constraints, which makes you behave in a certain way now, and you don't have to think about that at all. But those constraints we're going along with because we consent to them. As long as we consent to them, that's okay. So McDowell's saying that's a good gloss on one notion of freedom talking about this aspect of our relation to the world. So Robert Brandon, who's the other contemporary philosopher that I'm drawing on and adapting the ideas to think about pedagogic questions, he talks about um, the distinction between a human and a thermostat or a para or another life form. What is a knower able to do that the thermostat cannot? They may respond differentially to just the same range of stimuli. So if the room's hot, I can go and turn the dial, make it cooler, and the thermostat appears to be responding in an identical way, just like the chimp does. I mean, by the way, when that chimp research was popularised, the BBC ran a broadcast saying, uh, chimps are smarter than human beings. But of course, what they were ignoring was they're doing completely different things. But it looks like an identical thing is happening, responding to this light stimulus. So what Brandon's bringing out is it looks like we're doing the same thing, the stimuli of the heat that's rising in the room, but the knower has a practical know-how how to situate that response in a network of inferential relations to tell what follows from something being cold, what would be evidence for it and what would be incompatible with it and so on. And this applies again to a two-year-old pre-linguistic child. They're already in this network of reasons. That's what distinguishes them as a human being. They're being habituated to reasons that have been instituted by human beings that we become responsive to. So 
Um, I may skip a little bit, but um, McDowell, who's uh, both Brandon and McDowell, are sometimes called the Pittsburgh Hegelians, um, but they actually work in, in quite different ways in the area. Um, but their philosophy is very significant in, in the contemporary period. And one of the things McDowell says is, how is it that our beliefs are answerable to the world? Because that, that kind of, you know, buzzing confusion that Riesch, you know, characterised at the beginning of this talk, that I used his quote, um, how can we get in touch with it then? How do we get in touch with the world if it is just a buzzing confusion? And he says, how can a belief return a verdict sufficiently favourable for the belief to count of as knowledge. That's like we're trying to say experience is a tribunal. This is exactly what we have with evidence-based research, isn't it? You know, you collect the evidence and that will tell you what to believe. You know, and then, as you know, there are all sorts of issues about what evidence is and how it was collected in the first place and how it was conceptualised. So McDowell says we're in a kind of quandary. Experience must, on the one hand, stand in judgment over our thinking, but on the other hand, it can't if we have this sort of epistemological picture. So he says, so where is experience located? If experience is made up of impressions, impingements of the world on our sensory capacities, then it's not connected by relations of one thing being warranted by another. So if experience is made up of just impressions, it can't serve as a tribunal. So how can the world teach us anything? No wonder you know, people are, are engaging with ideas that there isn't any kind of set knowledge and that it's just a matter of, of everybody's perspective on things. His argument, which obviously I can't go into in depth, but it's, and it's a very complicated but fascinating argument, and he doesn't just posit things, he does what he calls exercises, these ideas from looking at what's already there in terms of how people are understanding things. But he says the relevant conceptual capacities are drawn on in receptivity. It's not they're exercised on an extra conceptual deliverance of receptivity. Now, what does that mean? What he's saying is, if you're in a, a lecture theatre, whatever, you're not just receiving information. You're already in a conceptual framework. It may not be the one that's appropriate for the area that you're in, but there's already something there that's giving you a handle on what you're hearing. And, and we're ignoring that um, to our cost. So he says that human beings inhabit not simply nature, but second nature, which is already infused with meaning as a result of the practices and modifications of nature through which it's been brought about. So this room is an example of our second nature. You know, there's all sorts of objects, artifacts, you know, it's arranged, the space is arranged in a particular way. And we're all responsive to it in particular ways. And that's something that we've created but we haven't created it out of thin air. We've created it in concert with the materiality of a three-dimensional environment and the physics of it and of our body shapes. You know, we're sitting in a certain way um, in terms of design. So these things are us in, in... Thought is something which is actually in concert with reality. It's not something that's separated from this void. So... He moves concepts into nature, and this sounds very surreal, this is the Hegelian element. To include the mind in nature not, does not in deal, in, entail a reductive naturalism. So there's a whole strain of work in philosophy and elsewhere <clears throat> that attempts to explain what human beings do in terms of the same account that you might give to machines or you might give to other life forms or using the sort of causal accounts that you would give in science. He says the apparent dichotomy assumes... Um, 
between the natural and the normative or between nature, he doesn't say this, sorry, this is my interpretation of him, the apparent dichotomy assumed between the natural and the normative or between nature and reason allows us to think of the content experience as something separate from reason. But he says experiences have their content by virtue of the fact that conceptual capacities are operative in them. So this is really complicated and to do in a very short space of time. But if you can get the idea that when you're in contact with the world in any way, you're already drawing on a whole load of other things which have informed your responsiveness to particular things. And it's that that's too often ignored pedagogically. Of course, it's the classic issue, isn't it, of you know, not understanding what people bring to a situation or what they're understanding. But it's much, much more than that. We're responsive in particular ways because of these normative constraints. So it's the division between reason and nature, I would argue, that allows Claxton and other critics to place emphasis on us as makers of meaning rather than as responsive to reasons. A part of the picture is missing, the normative constraints that we institute in order to bind ourselves rather than to be determined by brute nature. So, so McDowell resists the idea that nature excludes what's distinctively human and instead insists that human second nature is part of nature. Obviously we've evolved, we're, our current conception, we've evolved from other life forms. We are nature, we're nature that thinks. We're an aspect of nature that has thought rather than swims or climbs trees or whatever. Predominantly. Um, so, second nature is part of nature, and this shifting the focus to second nature gives priority to the development of our co cognitive capacities by initiation not just into language but into tradition, i.e., into the um, historically accumulated wisdom about what is the reason for what, and they thereby acquire the capacity to think and act. Now, if you took Hirsch's early work, Clearly, he's not dealing with wisdom or tradition in terms of what is a reason for what. He's dealing with it in terms of facts, isn't he? He's dealing with it in terms of information. He's not bringing in this much more rich, complex sense of what it is that we're doing when we respond to anything or when we apply a concept. We've already connected that concept to many other things. So, constraints by norms according to this philosophical tradition, is the basis of freedom. It's our capacity to be responsive to reasons and not simply cause to respond that allows our actions to be constrained by norms that we've collectively put in place rather than by unmediated nature. It's, it's too extreme a caricature, and I'm only using the chimp example as a kind of thought experiment, but you might say the chimp's response is unmediated. It's not mediated by language or by culture by the concept of a number or by number order. It's a response to a stimulus. Brandon puts it this way. He says, the laws of nature do not bind us by obligation, but only by compulsion. If the ceiling came crashing down now, there's nothing we could do to prevent it. We're compelled by the force <coughs> of nature. But the institution of authority is human work. We bind ourselves with norms. So our disciplines, in concert with nature have arisen by the norms that have arisen over many, many centuries or in particular contexts, in particular communities, in particular practices, in particular disciplines. They're not just a matter of somebody's ideas. They're the ongoing collective kind of revision of concepts that goes on. 
So it's objectivity doesn't come from any one norm. Objectivity doesn't come from Bernstein's concept, concept of vertical knowledge. You know, that's, we, we can't just say immediately that's objective. It's not a label for something, as Michael said. It's a hypothesis. It's something to think about, to think with. So objectivity comes from this ongoing process of human beings to articulate how they're using concepts, how to give reasons for things, what claims that we make, what evidences we use, what warrants we have, and this ongoing dialogue. And I don't mean a kind of dialogue in a lecture theatre, I mean the ongoing dialogue of human history, which institutes objectivity. So it's through activities we distinguish correct and incorrect ways of taking the world. So of course this can incorporate perspectivism. Clearly, if you're coming into a situation from one position, you may understand it in a very different way to somebody else coming from another position. You're going to be applying what seems to be the same concepts in very different ways. You're going to have different meanings. So as students develop their understanding of a concept, the network of inferential relations constituting their concept changes. This involves changes in what is entailed by and what follows from the particular endorsements of the learner. Uh, the, the, the learner applies. I'm going to stop any minute now. So Brandon on concepts says, to have conceptual content is just for it, concepts, to play a role in the inferential game of making claims and giving and asking for reasons. To grasp or understand such a concept is to have practical mastery over the inferences it is involved in, to know in the practical sense of being able to distinguish what follows from the applicability of a concept and what it follows from. So the meaning of concept, rather than being fixed by reference, is fleshed out by the inferential connections that constitute it. And as these connections change, so the meanings of concepts alter. If I talk about force, in literature, in, in, in opera, the force of destiny, I mean something very different than if I'm talking about force in physics. Obviously, there's a little bit of overlap, but if I'm being introduced to the concept of force in physics, I have to enter the inferential domain of knowledge that is physics and become responsive, responsive to the rules about how I apply the concept in physics, i.e. what the normative constraints of physics are compared with literature. So any concept that we're using, and that's what dialogue does, isn't it? It finds out that when we're having a discussion about something, we mean something slightly different. We're signed up to different kinds of endorsements. So this opens the way to a more fine-grained account of pedagogic practice and what is involved in knowledge. So Rouse, Joseph Rouse is very good on this. He talks about the primary phenomenon to understand is not the content, justification and truth of beliefs. That might be the traditional conception of knowledge, you know, it's been justified, it's true. But instead, the opening and sustaining of a space of reasons in which there could be conceptually articulated meaning and justification at all. The space of reasons is an ongoing pattern of interaction among ourselves with our partially shared surroundings. So in a sense, we all inhabit a space of reasons. I've given you a very limited example of that in terms of the constraints of our behaviour within this room how we're moving our body, how we're thinking, whether we're speaking or whatever. But human beings are in a world that already has construction within it. It's not something that's just open to any kind of construction. There's already things that we're responsive to. So the significance of the social articulation knowledge for teaching and learning 
Instead of restricting how we think of conceptual content to its representational aspect, conceptual content is understood in terms of its conceptual role. Guidance with respect to the normative constraints within disciplines is essential if a learners are to draw upon the resources already established by generations between them and to develop dispositions rather than simply become specialists in inert so-called knowledge. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>